Morning, Warden. Wow, really good morning. That's very loud. Happy New Year. Man, when she said that the first Sunday of the new year, it just it gives you this little tingly feeling, right? It's just like, uh, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm not a real big fan of resolutions, or not New Year resolutions anyway. And this is why. Because sometimes you might want to do something in September. You might want to do something in March. Don't wait till the new year to do it. I like resolutions, but I like all your resolutions, everyday resolutions. You want to lose weight, do it now. Yes, that's for me. <laughs> if you want to learn a new skill, you want to speak a new language, you want to do something, do it now. Don't wait. I love resolutions, but the idea of a New Year resolution, sometimes we need that fresh start, and if you need that, then God bless you, but be resolute all year, amen? Amen. But I, I'm just praying God's blessing. I hope you know that we pray for every one of you, and we pray for this church, and we believe what God's going to do in 2024, amen? I'm excited. I, I, I wake up sometimes, I just mentioned somebody this morning, I wake up sometimes overwhelmed with everything that I, I mostly everything I want to do, not everything I have to do. And, I, and, and, you know, you wake up and you sit down and you talk to God and you feel the peace that he's in control. And that's an amazing thing. And that, that's all I want for you in the new year is just pray for God's best for the person sitting next to you, for me and my family. And we'll do the same for you. Amen. I'm excited. 2024. Let me just, for all you people who are old enough, let me just put this into perspective for you, okay? Who remembers Captain Kirk from the Starship Enterprise? Do you remember you would sit down in his chair and he would press his button and go, star date, 19, whatever. You know what the futuristic date in that show was? 1999, people. That's what they thought 1999 was going to look. They would say, star date, log, 1999. It's 25 years past that now. Just a little perspective for you. We're old. It's all good. Well, I, um, I spoke to our staff about uh, this, oh my gosh, about at least two months ago now, maybe three months ago. It's just a brief little devotional in... in um, in our staff meeting, and I said, oh man, I, I literally said it to me, I said, I think there's a sermon here, and I began to pray about it, and write some notes down about it, and here we are today, the first year, first Sunday of the new year, and uh, God laid the, the, the idea of reverence on my heart, to start the year with reverence, and uh, I hope that this makes a whole lot of sense for you. And uh, today is a good day to be resolute about reverence. Amen? So reverence is a posture of deep respect and awe, very simply put. Uh, it is honor or respect shown, a profound respect or adoration. It can be described uh, in part as deference, respect, or esteem given to a superior or an elder. I mean, that is literally the book definition of it. Uh, for instance, imagine trying to teach someone how to shoot a basketball, you know, and I've done a lot of this in my life. I coached for 12, 13 years, played for another 8 to 10 years of basketball, so I've taught a few people how to shoot a jump shot, but I'm going to tell you right now that if I was teaching somebody how to shoot a jump shot and Michael Jordan walked in the room, I'd be a little nervous. 
You know, I, I may give deference to the man, if you know what I mean, the legend. Uh, reverence can impact us physically and emotionally, but also spiritually. Have you ever been around someone that you would describe had presence? Know that you're, when you're around them, you're like, oh my goodness. I have friends that I know, and, uh, and I remember joking around with one friend of mine. I'm not going to out him right here because, yeah, I didn't ask for his permission or anything. But I told him, I said, can you do something to make me feel better about myself? Why are you so good? And I know that's a terrible thing to say to somebody, but he's a friend that I, I just admire so much. And he literally, he really lives a holy life. And I see it, how it affects his family. I see how it, and when I'm around him, I, I feel, I, I feel his, I feel the presence of God in his life. And I love that. I have actually, you know what, the friends, the close friends I have, I can honestly say that about all of them. That they, they hold me to a higher standard, and I feel that. I feel their presence, you know. I feel the presence of God in their life. Have you been in a place, setting, or situation where your surroundings affect you in such a way that you feel something other? You feel the Creator's influence because everything just seems so vast or just seems so surreal. I don't know if you've ever been there before. Now, this is our definition. It was up there a little bit ago that I just kind of want to work with today is to be reverent means to live with the constant conscious awareness that we are in the presence of an awesome holy God. Now I read a lot of definitions, a lot of very spiritual definitions of reverence. And I just wanted to come back to this very simple one by Heather Riggleman from Christianity Today because I just think it captures the essence of it. And I just want something you can take home. Think of these words, constant conscious awareness of God. I don't know if you've ever been out on the ocean before. I'm a Newfoundlander. You're going to get ocean illustrations. Just get used to it. Basketball illustrations are coming. Ocean illustrations are coming. You'll figure that out eventually. If you've ever been in an ocean, maybe you've been on a cruise liner, you know, like these massive big boats that have their own aura about them, or you've been on a ferry or something, but Growing up in Newfoundland, I've had the opportunity to be out on the ocean. I mean, out on the big, blue, almost black ocean in 19 to 21-foot boats. And it is incredible. There's something about being out on the depths, you know, looking at the deep blue and at times seemingly black water and experiencing the little, literal vastness of the ocean. You just feel so small, so helpless. The last time... I remember being out in boat with my Uncle Wilson, who passed away a couple years ago. And I remember being in his old, his old motorboat, and it was about 30 feet long, and it had a cabin in the back. If you grew up in Newfoundland, you know what a motorboat is. It has a little steer thing in the back, and you hear it going down the bay. It's, pop, 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 pop. Oh, it's a very comforting sound when I think about it. <laughs> but I remember standing in the back of this boat, and I crawled him up on the cab because we were chasing a whale. And I remember seeing this whale in the front of the boat, just in front of the boat. You see the white edges of the whale and just come up in front of me. And I just remember going, <sighs> because it was just cool. It was huge. It was vast. And it just took my breath away. You know, it had, like, that moment had presence. You know what I mean? And there's a respect and fear that reminds me that when I go out on, the, out on the ocean, 
And it reminds every fisherman and every person who's ever worked on the ocean that, that they need to check some things before they go out. You need to check the wind. You need to check the rain. You need to check the snow. You need to check the tides. You need to check all these things because you don't go out on the ocean if you do not respect her. You don't go out there if you do not have a conscious awareness of the power that exists there, the vastness. Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 15 says this. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord in his counselor, as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who has it that taught him knowledge? Who was it that taught him knowledge, pardon me, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word today. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages of Scripture, Lord, and talking about just being in your presence and how it should affect us. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, that even right now, that we would feel the vastness of your presence. We would feel your might, power. We would feel your love, your care. We would feel your goodness. So, Father, as you communicate this word to our heart, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, because that's the only way we're really going to receive it, we open ourselves to you and to what you want us to do in our lives today and in 2024. So give me clarity of thought and speech, Lord, as I present your word. Help me to function, Lord, within the anointing that you placed on my life to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are times when it appears as though reverence and fear are synonymous in Scripture and in life. Um, we use this interchangeably, but I, I want to make a little bit of a distinction here this morning. Fear is an element of reverence, but reverence is not fear alone. <coughs> Excuse me. Reverence in the Old Testament comes from the Hebrew words um, yare, which I'm not, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but if not, you'll forgive me. You have to. The Bible tells you to. Yari, which literally means fear, but is used as an attitude towards God himself, as if to fear God. And then the second part of the word for reverence in Hebrew is shaha, which the root idea of the word is prostration or to fall down. And it has an idea of humility, modesty, of deference to the one who is superior. We talked about this in quite depth in the Hebrew series, uh, but I want to take a little bit of a different approach to it today. At the heart of what I want to communicate this morning is that reverence is about presence. And if we are not aware of God's presence or are unconscious of God's presence, we will not experience deference to his presence. When is the last time you felt shaken, nervous, moved, compelled to act in a certain way, inspired, uneasy, or struck by the presence of God. 
When is the last time that you felt the weight where you felt him so press upon you to do something that you were afraid not to do it because there was a possibility that you may displease him if you don't? When is the last time you felt uneasy in his presence? I've kind of learned over the years that if God asked me to do something, he generally asked me to do something that I can't do myself, that I need him for. And it always makes me feel, whew, I don't know. I don't know if I should put my name in a warden. You know, I haven't been a lead pastor for five years. I don't know if I should do that. And you realize that he calls you to do things that you can't do yourself. Because you need to be aware of his presence. You need to be aware that he's walking with you. And that he's present with you. So this morning I want to take a look at a couple of New Testament accounts that involve reverence and fear of God. Uh, The goal is to begin this new year with a healthy perspective of God, his presence, and why a healthy fear understood properly is not only a good thing, but absolutely necessary. If you don't believe that, I want to invite you to come with me to Newfoundland and I'll walk you to the edge of the 200-foot cliffs of Cape St. Mary's and you tell me if fear is your friend or not. I'm going to tell you it is. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty striking. Fear is necessary for our safety. It keeps our senses sharp if you are acutely aware of the source. So I want to look at fear. I'm going to look at the words in, in Greek a little bit. Uh, the word that, that I want to talk about the most this morning is a Greek word, phrobeomai. Uh, it literally means Fear, and most of the time in the New Testament, in the NIV, you'll see it translated as afraid. And in some contexts, it can be improper and an impediment to faith and love. You ever have that fear that you don't want to go up and talk to a certain girl? Keeps you uneasy. If I listened to that fear, I wouldn't be married to my beautiful wife today. It would be an impediment <laughs> to, re- to receiving that blessing. You see what I mean? Sometimes fear, you know, it can be an impediment to faith and love. It also refers to reverence, respect, worship. In other contexts, a proper fear of God, a deep reverence or awe. As a side note, this word, the root word is phobos. And you may recognize this word as from phobia. And we have some pretty irrational fears in society today. I don't know if you know this. Let me just share a few with you, just for some fun here today. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to repeat this one, but this is an actual fear. It's hippopotamonstrosequipedeliophobia. That's a legitimate word. You're not going to believe what the fear of that is. Can you guess what that is a fear of? It's a fear of extremely long words. I mean, what sick, twisted human being came up with that name? As the fear of extremely long words. The second fear I want you to know about is one that I'm glad none of you in this building have today. It's vestophobia. Can you guess what that one is? The fear of clothing. So I appreciate you all not having vestophobia here today. And I'm sure you appreciate the same for me. Another one is optophobia. And 
you know, this is one that you can use. I'm giving you a little hint right now. You can use optophobia when I'm talking to you. So if I point you, I catch you sleeping in church, you can say, no, I just have optophobia, which is a fear of closing, uh, which is a fear of opening one's eyes. So if you fall asleep and I catch you, just say, no, I have optophobia, pastor, and I can't do anything about it. It's, just, it's a disability. Um, and then there's nomophobia. And I wish more people had this one, actually. Or, or not, we probably need more of this in society. Nomophobia is the fear of being without your mobile phone. And I'm going to tell you, I've been at some, fear, some funerals where I wish that people had fear of, I was at a funeral one time, and I'm, not, I'm no word of a lie. I hear, I, I'm getting ready to, to present the homily for the funeral, the little sermon, and all of a sudden I hear, I like to move it, move it. I like to move it. Turn your phone off, people. When you go to a funeral, when you go to church, that's a little public service announcement right there. We all need a little nomophobe, and we <laughs> we need to, we we need to not have this fear. You know, like let your phone go once in a while. The first account I want to look at this morning, when we look into the New Testament when we talk about reverence and fear. I want to look at Luke chapter eight, verses twenty-two to twenty-five. It's a very familiar account to you. It begins in verse 22. It says, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. And this is not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee. The geography was such around the lake that storms came up very quickly. Uh, It says in verse 24, the disciples went Uh, Sorry, it says in verse 23, as they sailed, he fell asleep, talking about Jesus. And a squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? Remember, remember that fear can be the improper impediment to faith and love. Says, where is your faith? He asked the disciples. And then their answer is, in fear and amazement. In fear is that word, phobeomai. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. I mean, if you take this passage at face value, and I invite you to do so, you need to Take a look at it and just be amazed at the irony that's in this passage alone. First of all, how is it that the professional fishermen in the boat are the ones calling on the son of a carpenter when the seas are rough? You would figure they'd be like, Jesus, get up and give me a hand. This is what you need to do. Go grab this, grab that, and do this, or go over here. We're going to die. But they don't show any professional know-how at all. They're, just, they're in panic. They're in absolute disaster mode, which means that this storm must have been pretty massive that these fishermen were even scared. The reality is that the disciples were still learning who Jesus was. Their fear in this situation was messing with their faith. It was impeding their faith. Their fear for their lives is evident when they wake Jesus up. But the first time this passage really mentions the word fear is when they talk about the fear and amazement they had when they realized that Jesus could command the wind and the waves. Now, of course, the fear is implicit. They were scared. This is why they woke Jesus up in the meantime. But in this passage, the first time the word fear is mentioned is when they realize what he is capable of. 
Their fear of God, their understanding of what it meant to be in his presence was beginning to set in. And the question, who is this, is remarkable. Who is this? You can feel the fear, the contemplation, the uneasiness, the amazement. They were in a boat with an indescribable supernatural power that even the natural elements obeyed. Did they know who this man who raised the goosebumps on their arms truly was? Have you ever seen the ocean or even a big lake after the winds and a storm die down? This kind of settled in with me the other day, and I was, there was a still a significant swell on the water. You know, like it's, it's not like the storm just goes boom, gone, flat, calm. But here it says the storm subsided and all was calm. Can you imagine how strange that would have been to people who made their living on this lake as fishermen for most of their life? Can you imagine what it would have been like if there was a massive storm and the wind and the waves and everything just went whoosh, as flat as this table? I, it, it's, growing up where I grew up, it's hard to even imagine. They were still somewhat unaware that they were in a boat with the creator of the universe. Reminding Colossians, it says that by him and through him all things were created. Talking about Jesus. And he sustains all things. They were in the boat with the creator of the universe, but their fear of God, their reverence of him was still developing. I'm reminded of God's word to Job Elihu, Zophar, Bildad, and Eliaphas, when God finally tired of their explanations, you know, these Job's comforters, sometimes we think that God's response is just to Job, but I think he's frustrated with all these other guys too, these quote-unquote comforters, these friends of, of Job who came to try and correct him to make sure that he was living a holy life and, and thought that he must be experiencing everything he's experiencing because he's not living a holy life. And then God finally tires of their explanation and tires of Job's complaints about his tragic circumstances. Then the Lord responds in Job 38, 1 to 7. And if this doesn't send a chill up your spine, I don't know what will. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, it says. Can you imagine out of a storm, the voice of God? And he says, Who is this that obscures my plans? with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man. I can't tell you how many times I've read this. I did a, 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 a paper in Bible college on integrity, and I decided to focus on Job. And when I decided to start reading, I started reading right here, and because and, I wanted to understand why they describe this man as blameless. And I started reading this, and it just, I, just, I, was, I was struck with a reverence for God. And I went back to the beginning of Job. And before I wrote a word of that paper, I read Job from start to finish that night. And I couldn't stop reading it. And I got back here. And as I read this again for the second time that night, again, whew, just felt this uneasy presence of God, thinking about what it would have been felt like to hear the words of God from this storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. And you shall answer me. He says, and this is, this is the mic drop. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked out its dimensions? Surely you know. 
Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Oh, who laid its corner or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? I could keep reading. When was the last time you felt God's presence like that? We begin to see in the lives of the disciples in that boat a deep reverence, a deep respect, and awe, a, a fear of God when they begin to realize who they're around. Their understanding of who laid the foundations of the earth was growing because only he could tell the wind and the waves to be quiet. When was the last time you felt God's presence in a way that you were arrested by his indescribable power? By his intimate and very personal presence. When was the last time that you invited him into one of your, your, your moments where you, you just felt lost and you said, God, I need some company? Sometimes it's that simple. It is amazing how God's presence can make you feel so alive, but so uneasy at the same time. We can't help but feel unworthy, yet at the same time, holy love. Listen to Job's response after God had corrected him and his friends, quote unquote. Job 40, verses 1 to 5 says, The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Then Job answered the Lord, and I relate to this greatly. Verse 4 it says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? He could have said this after the first line. Where were you when the foundations of the earth was laid? He says, okay, stop. I'm unworthy. <laughs> but here he is after, if you read the rest of 38 and 39, oh my goodness, let it shake you to the core. Let it remind you of who he is. But then he says, Job answered the Lord. He says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once. I have no answer. Twice but I will say no more. <coughs> Job was reminded that this was the creator and he was the created. Fear of God keeps us from getting this twisted. Being aware of who God is, fear of God, reverence of God, making sure that you find time to feel his presence, to feel uneasy in his presence, reminds us not to get this twisted. He is the creator and we are the created. He is the potter, we are the clay. Pick a metaphor from Scripture. <laughs> Another account that can help us better understand reverence and the fear of God is in Mark 5. And they just, so now they just cross the lake again. They do a lot of traveling across this lake and they come to the region of the Gerasenes. He encounters a man with an unclean spirit. And yes, you need to understand this morning that Jesus understood that there was a devil, he acknowledged that there was a devil. He acknowledged that there were unclean spirits, that there were demons. Jesus himself acknowledged that there's spiritual powers in the world that are fighting against God and everything that God wants to do. And as Christians, we need to understand that those powers exist. But hopefully after you read this account, you realize where they come when it comes to Jesus. Let me just read down through here, beginning of verse 3. It says, This man lived in tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. 
supernaturally strong, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons of his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs, and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. I mean, if you're not feeling a little bit of a fear reading that, I don't know, you know what I mean? Just even reading that sounds a bit unsettling, right? There's something that comes in, this natural terror that comes in when you just read about the fact that that could actually happen. But listen to this. It says, when he saw Jesus, from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. All of those things, this, the, natu- the, the ability to be strong enough to break chains, caused the whole community to be afraid. So much was going on in his life, living in tombs and cutting himself at night and stuff. All these things that caused fear. He was afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of Jesus. It says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And many of you probably heard this story before. But the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. That word permission is so important. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down a steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were, Bobeoman, afraid. In the first account, Jesus commands the elements. Now he displays his power over the spiritual forces. There's two displays of fear in this passage. First, the unclean spirit feared Jesus, and it refers to him as the son of the most high God. The phrase alone would have raised the eyebrows of anybody listening. That they revered God. They knew that they could do nothing against the power of God. They fell in complete submission. They fell in complete reverence to who they were standing in front of. find this account remarkable. Jesus sets this man free. It says he was sitting there dressed in his right mind. You think that this would be good, a good thing. He's healed. Look at him. My friend, maybe somebody there knew him when he was a little boy and my friend is back. Like I, I've never seen this guy before. And now he's there in his right mind, clothed. Everything is good. Jesus made right what was wrong. But this is what inspired the fear. What about this deliverance would have inspired fear? Verse 16 and 17 says that they, the witnesses, told others what they saw and they pleaded with Jesus to leave the region. It freaked them out. And you know what? Sometimes the presence of God 
If you're not living right with Jesus, it might freak you out a little bit. If God comes to you and convicts you of something that's not right in your life, it might freak you out a little bit. But what, the worst thing in the world you can do is, is not acknowledge who it is that's speaking to you. The world would tell you to ignore it and move on, make your own life, do your own decisions, make your, you know, it's a very humanistic thing. Whatever you want to do to make you happy, go do it. But then the spirit of the living God has come to so many people. I believe it with all my heart. And he's come and they felt his presence and he's called them away from certain things. And they just get freaked out because they don't know who it is that speaks to them. The question that the disciples asked in the boat, who is this, is not recorded here, but it is definitely implicit. But instead, who is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey. Now it's who is this that even the spiritual forces of the world submit to? They were experiencing the power of God, the presence of God, and it made them feel uneasy. It wasn't anything they had encountered before. Now, there's different words, just to be clear, there's different words in the Greek for, for scared or afraid or terrified. And one is terrasso, which literally translates terrified. And you'll find this in the account in Matthew chapter 14, when it talks about Jesus walking on the water. It says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw the, him walking on the lake, they were terrified. Understandably so. He says, it's a ghost, phantasma. It's a ghost. They thought they saw a ghost. They, had, they said and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. But this is terrified. This is not obeyamai. This is not fear of God. This is not a fear that makes you, that impels you to do something with your life. It's not a fear that, that makes you aware of the presence of God. It's, they, were actually, they thought they saw a ghost. Ever feel that way? And then there's Delios, which is also afraid or cowardly or timid. And 2 Timothy 1.7 is probably the most common use of this, for the Spirit of God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and of self-discipline. It does not make us afraid. It does not make us cowardly. It does not make us timid. The Spirit of God makes us bold. The type of fear experienced by the disciples and those who witnessed the man delivered was not timidity. There was certainly an element of terror, but they encountered a power and the presence of God that they had to acknowledge. And when we experience this power, the presence, there are two responses. We recognize the presence for who he is, or we flee in fear. Not fear of death per se, but consequences and possibly even accountability. I happen to believe that the biggest crux to society is accountability. People say that there's not enough evidence for God. That's a, that's a lie. Everywhere you look, every moment in your life, there's an opportunity to experience something that God's created. God is, you know, he says that in Matthew, in Romans chapter 1, I believe, verse 20 or 26, somewhere in that range, says that, that, that he is, his invisible characteristics are clear to be seen, that no one's without excuse. There's so much evidence for God. Everywhere I look, I see Jesus. I see his hand on the world. We cannot, there's, there's even, I mean, I could get into scientific things, but I just, I don't have time to go down that road today. 
There's evidence for Jesus, but I'm going to tell you that when people are confronted with the evidence of Jesus, they're also confronted with the conviction of Jesus. And the accountability of that, because when you come into the presence of a God who can speak to the wind and the waves and tell it to be quiet, when you come into the presence of God who stands in front of a man who is broken by the spiritual forces of this world, and he tells them that they have to submit to him and to leave. When you come into the presence of God, there's an accountability that 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 demands. God is calling you to a higher place. God is calling you to be a son or a daughter of the living God. And we sometimes feel uneasy with that because that means we got to maybe have to change things in our life. God forbid. We don't want to list all the things we have to change. And I'm not going to list all those things because the Spirit of God does that better than I do. And, you know, then we get into this whole legalistic decision. I can't believe the pastor's on the stage with jeans on. Good grief. There is one last account I want to address in closing. And it's where when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he had the two criminals on either side of him. Luke 23, 39 to 43 says this. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I love, I love this account. The first thief has the attitude that much of the world has. If you are God, save yourself and us. If you're God, you know, like take me out of my situation. If you're God, why does a God of love allow cancer? Why does there have to be so many wars? You know, why does it seem like religion causes so many wars? Why does God allow natural disasters and so many people to die? How can a God of love let 9-11 happen? Where is God when people are dying of COVID? And of course, you know, we come back to this word accountability again because when these bad things happen, it's all God's fault because apparently he has the power to stop it all. But we can't take accountability and say, what have we done to cause these things. But this is the words that we hear on the cross. If you are God, save us and save yourself and save us. Why don't you just lift us from all of this? We may not get all the answers we want or expect, but if we want true peace, we need and I invite you to encounter the presence of the living God because that is how we learn who is really in control. We need to fear God, to revere him. It is not a fear that impedes our faith. It shouldn't be. But it is a fear that arises when we encounter infinite grace, power, sovereignty, justice. All the world needs justice. Mercy. when we encounter a power that makes us uneasy because we wonder why he bothers with me. 
You ever been in the presence of God and you, and you feel like, oh, I messed up again. I did this again. I've been trying to beat this my whole life, God, and I keep making the same mistakes again. But still his presence comes when you ask him. And you're left saying, why do you keep bothering with me? Have you ever felt that uneasiness? That's your uneasiness. That's not him. He's there because he wants to be there. He's there because he loves you. He's there because you need him. He's there because he knows better what you need than you know yourself. But in the midst of the encounter, we experience a love that bids us come. And with fear and trembling, we stand in the safest place possible in his presence. Where criminals even get invited into paradise. To revere God, to truly fear God is honestly to understand, as Timothy Keller often said, he is God and we are not. This is what God is saying to Job. This is what he put on display in the boat when he spoke to the elements and told them to shush. This is what he was saying when he spoke to the spiritual powers and they had no choice but to obey. He was saying, and this is really the message of Scripture, He is God and we are not. And we can stand here and say, oh man, well that, that doesn't seem fair. I, don't take this the wrong way. It don't matter if you think it's fair. I'm talking about the reality of the Word of God. I'm talking about the reality of his presence. And I'm not up here to tell you exactly what you want to hear all the time. But what you need to hear is, is that it doesn't matter if it doesn't sound fair because he knows better. He created you. He knit you in your mother's womb. He had a plan for you before you were born. From the foundations of the earth, he had a plan for you. He knows you better than you know yourself. It doesn't matter if you think it's unfair. He is God and you are not. Isaiah 55, 6, 9 says this. It says, Seek the Lord while you may be found. What a powerful phrase, that one phrase. Seek the Lord while he may be found. It tells us that at some point, you're not going to be able to seek him anymore. Call on him while he is near. This is written 700 to 1,000 years before Jesus even came. And it's the same warning echoes today. Seek the Lord where he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. The criminals on the cross come into the kingdom, right? Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. And he says in verse 8 and 9 in chapter 55, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. You may think that that person deserves to go to hell. You may not have lost your grace and your passion for that person because you've given up on them, because you look at them as a lost cause. Jesus has not. Because his ways are higher than your ways and his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And his mercy is bigger than your mercy. And his grace is bigger than your grace. But it's available for you. 
And when you look at that person who you've tried to help and you feel is that lost cause and you say they're never going to accept Jesus, they're never going to do this, they're never going to do that, they're always causing problems. When you look at that person, ask Jesus, say, God, give me your mercy. Give me your grace. I understand that your thoughts are higher than my thoughts, that your ways are higher than my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so your my ways, so are my ways higher than your ways, he says and my thoughts than your thoughts. When you do encounter him present, his presence, it becomes clear that we must live with constant, conscious awareness that we are in the presence of an awesome, holy God. Sometimes we just need to stop and be okay with the silence. Put your phone in a different room. Turn off the TV. Find the quietest room in your room. And just be quiet before God and say, God, let me experience your holiness. Let me feel as the Old Testament describes the weight of your glory. Lord, let me feel as the New Testament describes the light of your glory. Father, let me experience the power that delivered the man from the evil spirits. Let me experience the power. Let me feel just a little bit of the power that you used, Lord, when you spoke and you told the wind and the waves to be quiet. Let me experience the grace and the mercy, Lord Jesus, that you exercised when you were on the cross and you looked at that criminal and you said to him today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Oh, I want that grace. I want that mercy. It only comes when we revere God. It only comes when we have a fear of God that makes us a little bit uneasy because we feel his vastness. We feel his power. We feel his holiness. It feels beyond us, but he's still so present and we still feel in the midst of it all so holy love. That's where it begins. That is how I want to begin this year. Being aware of God. I know it sounds so simple, but He is God and I am not. And I don't want to live a day. I don't want to live a moment in my life where I do not acknowledge the holy, mighty, everlasting power majesty, grace and mercy and justice of the living God. I want to be aware of it. I want to be living on the edge because I feel it. As we head into a time of communion and gather around the Lord's table, man, if you're sitting here and you say, man, I've never really experienced the presence of God like that, boy, this is a great time. I want to tell you, church is not the only place. If we limit God and say that you need to go to church to sense his presence, then we have failed you. I have stood on the shore and cried big tears because I had, got, I had been going to church for, for 
time after time after time, and, and for whatever reason, probably my own fault, I wasn't experiencing God in the way I wanted to. And I remember having conversations with God standing on the, on the ocean because I found myself down there a lot as a kid. I struggled with my temper and stuff, and I went down there, and I found peace, and I found calm. And I remember standing at the edge of the ocean and feeling the vastness with tears running down my face, saying, God, come, and he came. God can meet you wherever you are. It's great to be here. It's great to meet together in fellowship. The Bible tells us not to stop meeting together in fellowship. We need each other. The presence of God is enhanced when we come together and we agree. The Bible tells us that as well. Amen? But he's available for you. But what a great moment today as we gather around this table, metaphorical table of the Lord together today. And we partake of the Lord's Supper together, and we remember his body, and we remember the blood that he shed that made this grace and this mercy that we so desire available to each and every one of us. So we're going to take some time. If you haven't received a, a, a cup like this that has a little wafer on the top and juice underneath, if you haven't won, then wave one of our, our, our ushers or somebody down, and they'll get you one. I got two up here. I can throw you one. <laughs> But we're going to sing, and let's just take some time. And will you just, I struggle with this whole phrase, invite Jesus here, because I, I just believe he was here before we woke up this morning. But, but there's something about just saying, Jesus, come into my life. Come here. I want to sense you. Lord, if it makes me feel uneasy, then, then tell me why I'm feeling uneasy. What is it that I need to do, Lord, in your presence? But invite him, invite his presence here this morning, amen? Invite his glory here, amen? Let's just sing together. If